93% of your life is spent indoors, but so many of our favorite moments are outdoors. The fresh air, the feeling of peace. Since warmer weather is almost here, let's make the most of it with Outer, the new outdoor furniture company with purposely designed furniture to get you outdoors more. Outer makes the world's most beautiful, comfortable, innovative, and high-quality outdoor furniture, all from sustainable materials. I love the new outdoor dining table and chairs I just bought. It looks great in my backyard, and it's the perfect setup for hosting a dinner party. Go to liveouter.com slash thefounderhour to see all the incredible products they have to offer. For a limited time, get 10% off and free shipping. That's liveouter.com slash thefounderhour. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone, before we get into the episode, just a quick reminder, if you enjoy what you hear, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you get notified when new episodes drop. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, at The Founder Hour. Let's get into it. Welcome to another episode of The Founder Hour. Our guest today is Isaac Larian, the visionary founder of MGA Entertainment. MGA is home to some of the biggest brands in the toy space, including Bratz, Little Tykes, LOL Surprise, MGA's Miniverse, and more. Join us as we embark on a journey through the fascinating life and entrepreneurial saga of a man who's not only shaped the toy industry, but also overcome formidable odds to build an enduring legacy. Isaac shares the intricacies of his upbringing, offering a rare glimpse into the early experiences that fueled his entrepreneurial spark. From navigating challenges to seizing opportunities, he takes us through the pivotal moments that defined his path, a journey marked by resilience, creativity, and an unyielding commitment to his dreams. Discover the behind-the-scenes stories of MGA's rise to prominence as Isaac delves into the innovative strategies and bold decisions that propelled the company to become a global leader in the toy industry. Learn how he transformed adversity into motivation, turning setbacks into stepping stones on the road to success. This episode is not just a conversation, it's an exploration of the mindset that drives one of the most influential figures in the business world today. Hope you enjoy. So, you know, I was born in Kashan, Iran. Kashan is a city about 150 kilometers from uh, Tehran. And my dad was a textile merchant, very successful textile merchant, but he was not, I guess, a very good businessman. He made a lot of money, but uh, he gave a lot of his money to his friends, etc. And when I was four years old, he went bankrupt. So he went bankrupt and we moved from uh, Kashan to Tehran. First, I lived with my, we lived with my grandmother uh, in a two-bedroom apartment that they had. And then uh, my dad moved us to a city in Tehran, or outskirts of Tehran, called Narmak. Narmak at that time had no water, no electricity. We would get the water from the gutters. And uh, which would come two, three times a year. And literally, we'll go from one house to another, and you will fill up the well. And uh, we had no electricity at that time. So I remember, uh, you know, we, were, we shared a house with my aunt, who also had five kids. And uh, it was me and my sister at the time, uh, who's literally was a baby. She's five years younger than me. I, I went to elementary school and uh, 
there and I remember, uh, uh, well, my mother had me when she was 14 years old. She got married at 13. Mm. She's a smart, hard worker, very strong woman. And she put up with my dad's uh, situation, even though she came from a wealthy family. Mm-hmm. But she followed my dad uh, throughout his life. He would buy clothes or fabric, and we would sell in the house. And my dad, my mom would also, she was a good sewer, so she would make dresses for uh, the neighbors, etc. And then he got a small shop uh, where he was uh, selling textile, mm-hmm. clothes out textile down there. So, you know, when I went to school, I remember vividly that uh, my mom will sit under ca- candlelight and teach me math and writing, etc. That's how I grew up. We went to uh, that place in Tehran was very poor, uh, predominantly uh, fanatic Muslims. Not, I mean, I have a lot of Muslim Iranian friends to date, and some were some of my best friends. But unfortunately, in that area, was uh, they were basically brainwashed that the Jews are dirty, and uh, you know, like I remember when it would rain. They would beat me up because they said the rain touches the Jews' uh, body and there is the earth. Mm. So don't come out. So anyway, so... Is this during the, just to sort of set the tone in terms of time-wise? Right. It's during the Shah's time. During the Shah's time. Yeah, so this is before yeah. the Ayatollah yeah, Khomeini. Came. Yeah, I was born in 1954. So yeah, long in the 60s. But it was, it was like that. So... Isaac, I'm curious, you yeah. talked about how your mother came from a wealthy family and right. she stuck it through with your dad. D- did she see something in him, see some potential? In him? Did she ever talk about, you know, those days after? Yeah, no, uh, you know, at that time, my dad was 18 years older than my mother when they got married. When they got married, wow. So at that time, it was pretty much uh, arranged marriage. Mm. My mother's own mother had passed away when she was only six years old. Mm. So, and they had, they were five, six siblings. So if somebody came and they said, okay, I want to marry your daughter and she's had her puberty and she can have babies, they would say, okay, go ahead, please take her. Mm. So so that's basically what happened. But my dad was charming. He was was very, very charming. He was handsome. So that's what happened. Yeah, growing growing up in sort of these circumstances, did you? What was your outlook on sort of your future? What did you think it would look like? Well, it you know my outlook built over time. As first of all, I worked since I was nine years old at the shop, but even before that, you know, I would go to school, and a lot of times I got beat up. Uh, and by the kids in the neighborhood, and I would come home. At one time, my mother, I was all bloodied. She said to me, I never forget that. She says, if you ever come home again, beaten up and bloody, I'm going to also hit you. When when they hit you, you fight back. So, <laughs> so you know, I went. What did you do at that point? Did, I mean, did you like, 
learn self-defense? Did you, yeah, were so you angry? I, were you angry? Like, Of course, yeah. I was very, very angry. And, you know, so I started at that age, started working out. I got two bricks and two pieces of wood and made dumbbells out of them. <laughs> Oh and uh, started working out. And one day, you know, I was in my mind, I was ready for next fight. So one day when uh, uh, I came out of the house and a group of these guys, and there was a bully in the, in the neighborhood. His name was Morteza. You haven't uh, forgotten about him, huh? No. He was, he was big, built up, and he was the biggest bully. So. He says, he, he basically started uh, bothering me, and I said, okay, uh, don't do that, or I will hit you. And he says, okay, let's do it. He took off his shirt, and the rest of the kids in, literally made a circle and put me in front of him. And I don't know what came out of me. I still don't remember, but I just saw red. And I started hitting him so hard, and of course he was hitting me also. But, right, but I, all that all that anger came yeah, out. All yeah, all that anger came out, and you know, a few minutes later he was on the floor, and I was on top of him, and the kids pulled us apart. What did you learn from that experience? To fight back, yeah. <laughs> to basically fight back. You know, I got after that incident, I got the respect of him. He became a close friend of mine oh, okay. later on. I mean, once you kicked his ass, yeah. it's probably like, all right, exactly. I'm your friend. Yeah, exactly. you're, one, you're one of me. Right, <laughs> exactly. And I uh, got the respect of the neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, so that was one, one thing that I remember. There are a lot of things uh, that I remember that built what I became later on. I mean, there's another incident that I remember vividly, and that is probably what made me gave me the vision to do and be here where I am. Uh, one of the, one of my dad's creditors, you know, in Tehran, people don't know it snows. Mm. And it was during the month of December, and heavy snow was there. And uh, one of his creditors, with a, basically a, a bouncer, came in, knocked at the door. I opened the door. They burst in went to the living room, and uh, he had a metal stick, and he hit my father so bad that he fell bloody on the floor because he was asking for his money. Mm. And my mother was crying, and my little sister was crying, and I was in a state of shock. And how old were you at this time? I think about eight or nine mm. year old at that time, maybe even younger. Uh, but uh, so after they left, you know, my, my mom said, go get your uncle. And my uncle uh, lived about four or five kilometers uh, away from where we were living. And so I put my shoes on. I had a pair of shoes, snowshoes, but had a hole in it, black, <laughs> black shoes. We call them galoosh. Mm. So, and I put those on. I started walking on the, on the snow to go get my uncle. And I remember vividly that my feet was frozen. I was crying. And, you know, I said to myself at that time that one day I'm going to have 
so much money that I'm going to take care of my whole family. Mm. So they're never going to be poor, and uh, and I'll take care of them. And that's the vision that I, I remember, and I think that was one of the reasons for my success. You know, oftentimes when I think someone grows up in an environment like that and hasn't been exposed perhaps in their immediate circle to somebody or something where you've seen that sort of wealth creation, where you've seen it's possible. Right. Like it's, this is something that I right. can achieve if I want to. It feels so far away. It feels so distant. Right. Um, was there anybody that, you know, maybe in, not, maybe not in the family, but in your community that you saw, you know, this is something that is possible for me to achieve? No, it was just a vision that I set up. I mean, my, uh, my uncles uh, were wealthy. They lived in the wealthier uh, neighborhood and my cousins uh, were wealthy so i always basically looked up to them uh with an envy to be honest with you. what did they do did is uh, it familial they were or? they were in cosmetic business okay so so that's what happened but i worked throughout my uh, high school at my dad's shop and when i graduated from high school i said i want to get out of here i want to go to, I want to get out of here. When did the thought of coming to America kind of arise in your head? Well, I was about 16, 17, and I, have, I, I would get some money. I would went to see a movie, you guys were not born, called Easy Rider hmm. with uh, Peter Fonda. Is that uh, Henry Fonda's brother? Or yeah, no, son. Son, son. Peter, Jane yeah. Fonda's brother. Yes, yeah. exactly. And... Uh, for me, it was a great movie. I looked at it, it was Hollywood. Wow, and a motorcycle and beautiful blonde girls and everything girls. And so, wow, yeah. this is where I want to go. I want to go to, uh, I had a big afro, <laughs> dark skin. Yeah, like, I'll fit right in. <laughs> yeah. Did you have any other friends or people that so had moved I had, to America? I had another friend. Uh, his name is Ainola. Uh, we were classmates together. He he wanted to come to, he says he wants to come to America. First of all, let me backtrack for a second. After high school, you usually try to go to university. Mm-hmm. And in Iran, there is a test that you have to take. It's called Konkur. Mm-hmm. And they, they basically allow people <laughs> with good, good grades from top down. I was an average student, so was Ainola. So we, did, we got rejected. He had a brother, older brother, that had come to America, I think seven, eight months before. And his brother had a cousin who was here about a couple of years before that. So he said, yeah, I'm going to go and uh, get uh, admission to university and go to America. I said, I'm going to do the same thing. So uh, we both applied for uh, universities. I was admitted to University of Missouri in Rolla, hmm. and he came to Los Angeles. He was in Los Angeles. His brother was here. So I said, okay, I'm going to go. But first, in order to go from L.A. to America, you had to either go to New York to, or to L.A. Yep. So uh, I came to L.A., and you know my my mother uh, had borrowed seven hundred and fifty three dollars from my uh, uncles, and uh, 
got me a one-way ticket from $750 cash and a yellow blanket, which is actually at, hanging in the MGA headquarters outside, wow. and sent me my way. So I was 17. I came here. With all the blonde girls greeting you at the airport? There was none. <laughs> <laughs> there was absolutely none. So, uh, but uh, Ainola was kind enough. Uh, I had written him a letter uh, with my flight, etc. So he picked me up with his cousin. And uh, they took me to their apartment. They had a single apartment on Hawthorne Boulevard. And... Uh, you know, single, you know, if you have, I don't know if you know what a single apartment is. It's a kitchenette, mm. a living room, a couch that turns to bed. Like mm. a studio. Right. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> there was not enough room even for the both, both of them. And, you know, at, the, uh, at night, they put the couch out. They were sleeping together, and I slept on the floor. Mm. Uh, but I fell asleep before they went to sleep. And I remember listening to, I had jet lag, so I had waken up and was listening to John, Johnny Carson's show. Mm. They were they were laughing. I had no idea what they were, was saying. <laughs> uh, did, so, you, did you spoke English, though, at the time? No. Oh, you didn't speak English? No, 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 nothing. Nothing. So, I mean, you had obviously by this time already faced a ton of adversity growing up, you know, seeing, right. you know, the, the move to Tehran, seeing the, you know, incident with your father basically having no money, not going to university, coming here, no blonde girls greeting you. It's all right. devastating. And you're now living on the floor in this small space. What the hell are you thinking? I mean, like, what is going through your mind? What, what the fuck am I doing here? Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. What did I, what, what what did did I, I do? sign up for? <laughs> yeah, what a mistake I made. I mean, I need... So, and, you know, I woke up in the, uh, after, during my jet lag and the two brothers were talking, and the older brother says, what the hell is he doing here? Why did he come here? He has no money, no job. We don't have room here. We can't take care of him. Ask him to go back tomorrow. Ask him to go back. And I listened that, to that, and my heart dropped, and I really, uh, frankly, if I had money uh, to buy another ticket, I would have gone back next week, oh. right after that. So, but, uh, you know, so I stayed with them for a couple more days, and we went to, uh, he was in L.A. Southwest College, and I went there sitting in the cafeteria. I, mean, I didn't have money to go to, <laughs> to uh, Missouri, go to University of Rolla, and I had come here to work, and, you know, and everybody told me, you know where Rolla is? There's no jobs. There's 30,000 students. And you gotta, how the hell are you going to go to University of Rolla? So I went to uh, L.A. Southwest College. And I was a kid. I was 17 years old. Mm. And I was literally sitting there crying and uh, waiting to see what the hell to do next, waiting for Angelo to finish his classes. And a guy came over. His name was Sharoh. And he said to me in Farsi, are you Persian? I said, yes. He says, why are you crying? So I told him the whole story. And he said to me, pack your bags. I'll pick you up tomorrow. You come and live with me and my other two roommates. 
So I was, uh, it was like, wow, <laughs> God sent. Wow. So, yeah. so that's when, that's what I did. We went to, they had a, they had a two bedroom apartment in, uh, in 118 South Walnut in Inglewood. <laughs> that's, I remember the address. And he picked me up. He went there and he introduced me to his other two roommates. They're also Persian. And uh, he says, okay, but you got to pay your share of the rent, food, etc." And And had they come to America much prior? Before, yeah. It had come about a couple of years. Before. So they had sort of gotten a little right, sense yes. of how things work. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Isaac, at this moment in time, if you remember, did you still have that mindset of i want to be super rich so i could provide for my family no i was my my mind was how the hell am i gonna eat mm -hmm. and survive maslow's hierarchy of needs you're like back yeah. at the bottom yeah <laughs> my mind went to survival yeah my mind went to survival mode and you know i started looking for a job i walked literally hawthorne boulevard for about nine miles and you know at that time <laughs> persians when they came wore a suit because if you're going to look for a job, you got to look good. So mm. I wore this green suit and I started walking. I didn't have money to go. I had 25 quarters left uh, after buying sheets and food, etc. And so it was 40 days I was in America and literally I was down to 25 quarters. That's $4.25. No, uh, no, six twenty-five. Okay, my math, I'm not yeah. good at math. Yeah, no, I remember that. <laughs> so, yeah. but you it's know, I used, forget, to, huh? <laughs> I used to, I touched that. And I went to every coffee shop, gas station, 7-Eleven, you name it, store asking for a job. Nobody, they said no. So, uh, and someone looked at me weird, like, what the hell is this guy doing with his suit? Asking for any kind of job you have. Finally, I got to this coffee shop called the Spires Coffee Shop. And, uh, they also said no to me, and I had walked now, it was about 5, 6 p.m., and they said no to me, and I was, I started crying and walking back, and I was very hungry, but I had only 25 quarters left. So uh, there was a guy who I saw behind the counter, uh, and as I was walking back, he came and put his hand on my shoulder and asked me if I'm Persian. I said, yes. And he said, yeah, my name is Mo, Mo, Mo Muhammad. Hmm. Okay, so he says, uh, are you hungry? I said, yes, he said, come back. So we, he took me back. He says, he's the general manager of Aspire. And he gave me liver and onion. I still taste that. And I go there once in a while to still have it. Yep. It was the best food I've ever had. <laughs> so, you know, I'm curious. Yeah. It sounds like th this was like, a, you know, a couple times you had someone sort of enter your right. life in right. this moment where you're like yeah. at your bottom. Right. And I, I don't know, in retrospect, when you think about it, I feel like there's this like thing with the universe where you like put this energy out there right. and it comes back to you. Did you feel like the way you were approaching people or the way, like, what is there anything you can talk about in terms of why you think that happened? Was it just chance? Yeah, I, I really, I mean, uh, I really think that somebody was watching over me. Somebody was watching over me and I thought 
they are testing to see how far, how low I can go before they send help. That's 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 what went through my head. Yeah. But what but what kept you going? Because a lot of people in that in that situation would just cave and they would find a way to either go back to where they came from or just you know, I couldn't go back. Yeah. <laughs> so is that is that what it, it was? Just yeah. there was no other option. Yeah, there was no other option. You had right. to either survive or you right. become homeless. Or I mean, there's no other option. Right, and I, I'm curious as a as a learning lesson here, and you know, and we'll get back to the you know the story. But for a lot of people, you know, they're not always. It's not always their only option. They have different options. They could quit their job. They could find another job. They could do other things. How do you, and I mean, through your now years of experience as an entrepreneur, how do you stay in that survival mode? I have no other options but to succeed mindset. I mean, this is, as you, as you grow, I mean, your childhood has, and how you grow has a, really an impact of what we become. And, you know, you learn to fight. You learn to survive. Mm-hmm. As human beings, you know, we are all, uh, established in our DNA, in our archetype to survive, mm-hmm. and you know, th- not to give up. I, I always in my head, even at the end, when with with six twenty five, six dollar and twenty five cents in my pocket, I always somehow thought I'm gonna make it. You had this optimism, right? Yeah. I, I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna find way to make it and i got a job my first job was dollar 65 an hour at spires coffee shop graveyard uh, shift 11 to 7 in the morning washing dishes and i thought that was the best job i've ever had in my life <laughs> and you know and they wouldn't give you uh, the money you had to wait for two weeks to get a paycheck and i was dying to get a paycheck and uh, more says here's ten dollars <laughs> so you can advance yes and my roommate says okay you wait until you get your paycheck you pay the rent your rent and my first check was 135 dollars and change and it was the best thing i've ever saw wow. it was the color of the check was blue <laughs> i still remember yeah and did you feel like at that point you know you're just gonna build up from there like yes. what's you were just looking for the next step and the next right. step. And yeah, so, did you have, yeah, what did you have in mind? So now, you know, I had basically a stepping stone and what to do next. And so I enrolled at LA Southwest College uh, because I wanted to get an education. And uh, I kept on working. After two, three weeks, they saw that, wow, they, I'm the best dishwasher they ever had. So, uh, because I was fast, I would finish things. So they said, okay, they, they promoted me to a busboy. And I bust dishes uh, for a while. And then, uh, you know, I, I, I quit and went to, uh, I didn't quit that fast. Uh, I made sure. Actually, yes, I did quit fast. <laughs> because, no, because it was Mother's Day or something. And, and if you ever work as a bus boy, you know, you got to clean the tables fast, yep. go bring more plates in, etc. And I had a boss who was really horrible, was shouting at me, and I was the best worker they had. And, you know, one day, it was a Sunday, and I got so fed up from his shouting 
that literally I had a bunch of plates in my hand. I dropped it in the middle of the uh, <laughs> dining room, and I said, I quit. <laughs> and That's the English version of Yasu when you drop the plates. Right, yes. So I quit and left, and then, you know, and I had maybe five, six hundred dollars in saving, and then, you know, I quit, and I said, what the hell did you do? Why did you do that? <laughs> but I, when I got a job at the Reef Restaurant in Long Beach as a waiter, and now I could wait tables and get tips. Mm. And this is while you're still in school? Yes, I worked, I worked through, uh, I, the last job I had was at LAX, that round mm-hmm. restaurant. Mm-hmm. That's close I, now. Yeah, I was, yes. But I was, I became a captain, mm. which was great. And because I had more tables, I had a couple of waiters working for me. Yeah. But, you know, but I was still very cheap. I bought a tuxedo. They said, you have to have a tuxedo. I bought a tuxedo for $25 from LA Southwest College. <laughs> which I hemmed. Also, that's also hanging in here with my la- last tip inside. You got to go to the Isaac Museum after yeah. this to check it out. So d- during this time, Isaac, that you're doing the, the, this kind of restaurant hospitality work, was there anything else you had in mind that you wanted to do? Or was this just, again, this is my day-to-day, I'm not thinking ahead? No, I, you know, I'm a civil engineer by education. So. Remember, I came here before the Shah, mm-hmm. before the Khomeini regime. Mm-hmm. And my goal was to be, get a civil engineering job and go back to Iran because civil engineers at that time, all kind of engineers. I mean, yeah. most Iranians who came here, yeah, were engineers. they became engineers. Yeah. Yeah. It was like the oil, oil company was a big Oil companies, everything, yeah. construction. Yeah, even the Persian Armenians that came right. after the Shah fell, yeah. a right. lot of them are, you know, engineers. to this day, are engineers. Yeah. Yes, both, exactly. both grandfathers were engineers, right. worked yeah. for the oil company. Yeah, that's, that's what they did. Yeah. Because you would make a lot of money as an engineer going back. So I got my degree in civil engineering, and I graduated in 1978 from Cal State LA. It took me so long because I would take, uh, I, I couldn't afford, you had to pay for tuition. So I couldn't afford to pay the, uh, and work at the same time. So it took me a long time to graduate. No and financial aid back then. No, nothing. No, no you, you were a foreign student. You had to pay per unit. Yeah. So once you graduated, what did you end up doing? So I, you know, when I was in the uh, engineering school, I always thought to myself, I want to look at something else as, uh, and have my own business. So I took a couple of marketing classes. One of them was taught by a guy, I forgot his name. He was... It was in mail order and direct marketing class. The name of the class was direct marketing. And so I took a couple of his classes. And when I graduated, I had saved about fifteen, eighteen thousand dollars $18,000 of money. And I went to Iran after the revolution. And I didn't like the Shah, but I didn't like this regime even right. more. So I a packed. A lot had changed when you were uh, back. Yeah, I was crazy. I mean, it was chaos. They were going, they becoming, they took the country backward, in my opinion. Yeah. They became more fanatic than before. So 
I got, I came back to LA and started a company called Surprise Gift Wagon, where mm -hmm. I stored mail order. I'm curious, before we talk about that, um, you know, being in a position where, you know, you said you had 18,000 saved up, which obviously could pay the bills for a certain amount right. of time, but it's not all, you know, right. all this money. Why didn't you think I'm going to go, you know, I just got a degree in civil engineering. I'm going to go down the safer path perhaps and get a job somewhere and build more, you know, get more income as opposed to taking this huge risk of starting a business, which, you know, at the time, maybe, I mean, at the time certainly wasn't easier to, it wasn't easy to raise money, you know, like it is today. Right. Yeah. You have to, you know, you have costs, you have inventory if you're starting like a product type of business. So there's all these, like, it's a, it's a capital intensive thing. Why did you, why didn't you take the safer route? Because, you know, I was always a risk taker and I had some business experience working at my dad's shop because I would go to the bazaars and buy textile and bring it and selling it. So I, had, like I can do this. I can right. make this so happen. I said, okay, yeah, I can do this. And I, I, I saw the dream in that direct-to-marketing class, that mail order, if you hit it right, it can become very big. So I decided to do that, and I started selling importing brass giftware. I have it in my, uh, in my office. I still have them. And putting ads in Home and Garden and other magazines, and got a P.O. box in Beverly Hills because I thought, well, if they, <laughs> they will be much, much more. <laughs> yep. So, and I would go every day to check, check uh, for checks, and there were checks people sending to send. So you were importing the brass. Was it you know once you made the sale, then you would pay for it, or did you like have to buy a bunch of inventory? No, you had it? to buy the inventory. Where, so yeah. how where did you? Was it just I had, eighteen thousand? Yeah, from eighteen thousand. I I spent. I remember I I sent by Western Union. There were no uh, three thousand. $500 to a vendor in Korea, and they shipped me the product. And where were you selling these? I, in the USA, but I had it in, uh, ads in magazines, LA Times. I mean, not, not LA Times. I mean, home and Garden, yeah. etc. That's how mail order was yeah. at that time. And I always say, if I was patient, I would, be, uh, I would beat uh, Jeff Bezos <laughs> and be bigger than Amazon. Yeah. But that's what I started. I started doing that. I was not patient because it would take, at that time, you had to put an ad in the magazine and wait for 60, 90 days for, for to come. So I had learned import-export, so I started importing consumer electronics, uh, what they called gray market. Yep. And uh, basic name brand electronics, I would bring them from, uh, Japan and Korea, etc. How did you see the opportunity for that? Because I was like, I was, I always read a lot of ads, etc. There was a company called Olympic Sales, and they had a big spread of ads on on uh, uh, LA Times every week. And I look at that and I say, "Wow, uh, this guy, uh, they, they must be making a lot of money." and at that time, you know, Sony Walkman had come up, etc. Mm -hmm. So I went and started. Uh, telex is what we used at that time. There were no fax machines or email or any of that. And I sent the telex to a whole bunch of companies through Yellow Pages, asking for Sony Walkmans. 
and a couple of replied, and I asked for the cost. So you could buy it for sixty and sixty dollars. Yes, and Olympic Sales was selling it for one hundred and twenty-nine. Mm-hmm. So I bought eighteen of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's all I could afford. One hundred percent markup. It's pretty good. No, but that was retail. So I, yeah, yeah. I, I air freight the merchandise here, and I went to Olympic Sales. I went in and told the reception, I want to see the owner. He said, where are you? I said, tell him I have Sony Walkman. So the guy comes out, his name was uh, Francis Raval. <laughs> I never forget him. Short French-American guy. And he says, uh, are these stolen? <laughs> he, he, he said, no. He said, how much do you want for them? I said, 95. And he said, let me see them. So I took him to my car. He saw them. He says, are you sure they're not stolen? I said, yeah, no, it's not stolen. He says, okay, I'll I'll buy it, but uh, I give you the money in two weeks. Your first lesson in net 15. Yes. (laughs) No, so I said, no, I want to get paid in five days maximum. So he says, fine, and... That's how he started. He bought it. He gave, and five days later, I went and got the check. And then I got bigger. I became the biggest gray market importer of consumer electronics Where's, in America. Were these stores like the Best Buys in the Circuit Cities? There were they? no Best Buy at that time. <laughs> there was, no, there was, at that time, there was Radio White Shack? Front, Radio Shack, White, White Front, uh-huh. which closed. So what does this business, you know, you're importing that, what does that sort of lead into? So I'm, I am importing and selling consumer electronics uh, and getting bigger and bigger. I had, a, I had a big booth at CES show in Las Vegas. And now I started traveling to go and buy more directly from the source. And I was in Osaka, Japan. And, uh, you know, I used to also buy close out from Atari, uh, Atari video games, and ship those video games to Hong Kong, Singapore, etc. Then Atari went bankrupt. Yep. We've had Nolan Bush now the founder uh, on the yeah, show. Yeah, exactly. I know him. Yep. So, so then, uh, you know, I was in Japan and I saw Wall Street Journal that Nintendo NES system have become a $5 billion business. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. There's got to be opportunity here. Yeah, exactly. So I, I found out uh, from the hotel. I said, where is the Nintendo headquarters? They said it's in Kyoto. So I took a bullet train uh, car, <laughs> bullet train, and went to uh, Kyoto. And I took a taxi, went to Nintendo's headquarters, and asked to meet with the export manager. And <laughs> if you dealt with the Japanese, they, the Japanese reception picked up the phone and talked to somebody on the other side in Japanese and said, he's not here. I said, okay, who are you talking to? He said, no, he's, hey, he's not here. Said, like, don't worry, I will wait until he comes. So he did again, she did again, and I sat in the lobby. And in Japan, everybody goes to lunch at 12.30, all. Yeah. I come back at one thirty. It's not scattered. So twelve thirty came and 
she said to me, it's lunchtime. I said, I'm not hungry. I'm going to wait here. <laughs> and so everybody was leaving. This, this tall guy uh, goes and talks to the reception, looks at me and leaves. Uh, and the poor receptionist had to sit there because uh, skip lunch because I was sitting there. Yeah. So leave you on a table. Yeah. So they the guy looked at me and left, and then after lunch they came back, and I knew he was been the export manager. So he came over and he says, uh, "Hi, I'm Mr. Todori. Oh, hi, I'm Isaac Larry, and I gave him my card, and he says, "What do you want?" And the Japanese usually are not rude, but he was rude. <laughs> so I said, I want to buy your Nintendo Game & Watch, handheld games, and sell it in America. And this is the predecessor to the Game Boy, right? Right, exactly. Yes. Game & Watch. Right, Game oh. & Watch, yeah. I still have samples of this in my office. So he says, we're not interested. I said, wow. Okay, can I have your business card? So he finally gave me his business card, and I came back to LA. I went to Mitsui Manufacturers Bank, who was my bank at the time, and I opened the letter of credit for a million dollars. I had a line of credit now. I was doing $70 million in business. And directly to Nintendo, attention, Mr. Todori. <laughs> and then three days later, I called him and I said, Did you get the letter of credit? And he says, Yes, I told you we're not interested. But I knew the Japanese, once they, they get to take your money, they don't want to give it back. <laughs> so so uh, he said, I said, I'm to show you I'm serious. He said, okay, we will sell you these. It will take 90 days, and we will ship them in the Japanese packaging in, uh, in the gift. I said, can you just, because I couldn't sell Japanese packaging yeah, here. Yeah. So can you give it to me in bulk, in plastic? No, that's the only way. So, okay, fine. <laughs> so he's, he's a good negotiator. No, I mean, they're difficult, <laughs> difficult, yeah. because they could have really thrown away the yeah. boxes. Actually, they would save money. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not sure if you mentioned it, but ha were they already exporting these Game & Watches? No, no, no. So you would have been the first. Yeah, I, will, I was the first. The well, first they part. tried to do that, I found out, three, four years before, and they failed. Mm. They failed. So they gave up selling Nintendo Game & Watch in America. Instead, they sold Nintendo NES, mm -hmm. the uh, Nintendo Entertainment System. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, so, so I came, I started the subsidiary called Micro Games of America because I wanted to be like Nintendo of America. So, yep. <laughs> and, all, and I found the packaging company in Carson and literally the merchandise came, I created a new package, blister pack, and put the product in there, Nintendo, uh, <laughs> Micro Games of America on the top. I want to kind of dive, you know, before we talk about Micro Game, MGA, which I'm sure, you know, we'll talk about how it became MGA, right. but, uh, you know, your mindset at this time and, you know, being where you were before and even like when you were younger and want, having this mm -hmm. desire to want to be wealthy, never be in this position again where mm -hmm. you don't have money. And then you come to America and you're sort of at you know, yeah. ground zero, just starting from the bottom. And now you're at a place where I'm guessing you're making a little bit of money, you're able to afford, yeah. you know, life in well, America. 
Did that desire that I had burning? Mercedes. You had a Mercedes. Okay, so <laughs> you were doing pretty well. I mean, Mercedes, you know, was, yeah. you know, at the time especially yeah. too was, you know, it was it's expensive car. So Keep, keeping yeah. up with the like Middle yeah. Eastern, the Middle Eastern, yeah. 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 yeah, but yeah. It, but it was diesels with cheaper. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Yeah. 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 Um, did that burning desire come back? Where you're like, now I'm I'm back on track. I want to be yes. wealthy. And 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 how did you control that? Being at a place where I think you know it seems like these days the desire out you know out sort of weighs the you know where you're at it's like you're you try to get ahead of yourself too quickly um you know and sometimes it doesn't you know end up you know, the, the patience is important too right like of building and building and building little by yeah. little yeah i'm not sure if patience is how did uh, yeah how how are you how i'm your, very impatient yeah you know you think I that, I think that played a big role in yeah because yeah. yeah, i mean i was also paranoid yeah okay what's next What's next? What happens if Nintendo dies? What's next? So I'm very competitive and very paranoid mm. and trying to come up with the next thing, next thing, next thing. And that's how, that's, that's the burning desire that kept me going. It still keeps me going. And Isaac, at the time, how big was your team? We had 23 people. And what were you like as uh, a leader, as their boss? Or, I mean, with somebody who's impatient and wanting to just kind of keep going, a lot of times that could be pretty demanding for your team. Yeah, I was very demanding. I was an ass, to mm-hmm. be honest. With you. Yeah, but do you? And, and again, we we keep it real. We've been doing this for six years, so we know we know we know how it goes. But do you think that that's what it takes, especially early on, to have that kind of impatient, urgent mentality? Yes, and be demanding to reach that level of success. Yeah, you have to. You yeah. have to work yeah. passionately, and don't f- don't feel hunger don't feel anything i mean i used to work 20 hours a day 27 days a week yeah. 20 hours a day i mean i would sleep two three hours and be back yeah. at it again sending a telex buying a new deal selling it so yeah that's what you you need to have that how, how do you how do you keep your team motivated right when when you do have that drive that motivation and a lot of times as a founder you know we this show is really we don't interview only CEOs right. you've got to be the founder right. right and you have that burning desire to succeed because that's that's what you created right it's your right. it's like your baby and you don't want to see it die you want to see it continue to grow and thrive and thrive and thrive but how do you instill that into your people i think i think passion and drive is contagious and and if you're genuine about it everybody wants to succeed Mm-hmm. Everybody wants in the business want to succeed, and when you lead them, like when you when you're passionate about what you do, or back then, you know, like there were people saying, "Oh my God, it's eight o'clock at night. He's still in the parking lot. His car is still there. I was the last one to leave." They would stay because. I don't know how to describe it. They became it became like part of the same organism. Right. You know, you have to become one with your team. Right. I see on the yeah. wall owner operator culture. Is right. that what you're talking about? Yeah. Owner operator culture, giving people uh, a chance, fortune favors the board. These are all my sayings over mm-hmm. the years that is throughout the company. But that's what it takes. I mean, it's that's what entrepreneurs have what I call an innate ability. They're like hunters. Yeah. You know, like if you go 
I went to safari in Africa, mm. and I'm always curious and very observant. And we saw we were sitting in this car, and this lion was laying low on the long grass. We could see it because we were in the car, but the rest of the herds, etc., would not. And he was sitting there for at least 35, 40 minutes. And a herd came, and then he, j- he started jumping. And he went, and he went until he caught one. So that's a mentality that you got to look for opportunities and go be a hunter. Mm-hmm. And this is, uh, you know, the, in order, people ask me, I used to teach entrepreneurship at Cal State LA. That's where I graduated. And a couple of times at UCLA. And I would write on the whiteboard that in order to succeed, you must embrace failure. You must literally say, I want to fail. Because once you say, I want to fail, you don't have a f- fear of failure. Yeah, then you, the fear. you make things happen that crazy things that a lot of people think it's not possible. I mean, Steve Jobs was an incredible entrepreneur. Uh, Elon Musk, crazy guy. But look at him because he didn't, he embraced failure. He said, okay, I'm going to come get up and do it again. The biggest entrepreneur was Thomas Edison. He, he tried and, and I read somewhere and failed 990 times yep. before making the light bulb. Can you imagine? If he hadn't succeeded, he would be under candlelights. Right. And, uh, but when he finally succeeded, he didn't give up. Yep. So going back to the story of MGA, right. so uh, when does you know, selling, importing the consumer electronics become creating toys? Yeah, so uh, basically this is what happened. I got these rights in, uh, from Nintendo, and I started a subsidiary called Microgames of America. And it was selling Nintendo game and watch. The first year, I think we sold about $23 million made 32% gross margin, which was in consumer electronics, you made 8 to 10%. Yeah. And I said, oh my God, I died and gone to heaven. <laughs> and a year later, I almost went bankrupt because I had $10 million worth of Nintendo Game & Watch. People wanted something new. They didn't want it. But uh, so I, liquid- I kept the consumer electronics. And I liquidated the game and watch. But once you get the taste, that taste of 32%, yeah. you don't want to let it go. The so, taste of like the million dollars? Right, yeah. it is. So it is. So then I, I went and got the licenses for Pac-Man and Star Wars. Yeah. And believe it or not, Barbie and Uno. And I made electronic handheld games. Uh, under that name and kept selling it and consumer electronic became harder and harder mm-hmm. a lot of people went into it and the Japanese started uh, selling cheaper here so there was not that arbitrage Isaac d- did you ever have a passion for what you were doing or were you just more passionate about business and the the chance and the opportunity to make money in that arbitrage kind of you know, environment. Yeah, both, both. But, you know, as a child, I didn't have toys. Mm. And 
I have a special relationship and special love for children. People who know me, they will see me around children. They say, wow, your face changed, your eyes changed. I love children. And, uh, you know, my wife becomes, after you've been married for a long time, your wife has nothing else to do, so she becomes your analyst. <laughs> and says, you're leaving your child within. Then I mean, I have three grandchildren. Yeah. And, you know, I, it's, I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's the love that, not only them. Uh, so that's why I decided to do toys. And and were you married at the time, Isaac? When you were building the the when you were building MGA, the Micro Games of America, were you married? You had yeah, a family already? No, I already had built a good business, and I got married in 1984. Mm -hmm. and, and was it, I mean, I'm sure your wife has a lot of patience since you don't have a lot of the patience. Right. How was it, or how is it dealing with you? As I should it's, ask her this question, but yeah, it's not easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not easy. It's not easy to deal with entrepreneurs. Uh, it is very difficult to deal with entrepreneurs because their head is going, yeah. you know, like... A thousand miles an hour. Yes. Like, you know, can you imagine you're married, you're at dinner, your head is into the business, mm -hmm. and your wife asks you a question or says something. Can we go on vacation, Isaac? And you say, don't talk to me right now. <laughs> I know. Why? When can we talk? Not now. So it's not easy. It's yeah. very difficult so, to deal with that. So um, what was the toy industry like when you started to get into toys? Well, toy, toy industry was very different when I got involved in it. Uh, first of all, uh, toy building was in uh, 100 years in New York Toy Fair. It was where magic happened. We had a booth. Not a booth. We had a part of a showroom that we would get, and uh, retailers will, will come and uh, actually write actual orders mm. in those shows. So it was exciting. Toy business, I think, is one of the most exciting businesses on earth because it's, it's like a fashion business. You know, the feeling of getting an order. You know, I used to say, wow, when you get an order, now you want to go have a smoke because it's like having an orgasm. <laughs> it really was yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. kind of feeling. Wow, yeah. I got an order here. Yeah. So, uh, so it's it's very very exciting. But the kids change all the time, and you got to change with them. Mm. You got to change with them. Can you imagine if we had Nintendo Game and Watch? Now we would be bankrupt. Yeah. Nobody right, right. wants it. But yeah. to get the business going, you know, I mean, it was obviously a very different type of business than. You know, games where you know it's it's a probably a different type of manufacturing process, maybe maybe not. But like, how did you how did you get the ball rolling? How did you like pivot the business into manufacturing toys? Yeah, so I basically being curious and finding out what to do next, how to like I at that time I found a lot of these factories through Yellow Pages. In the U.S.? or Yeah, is you would go to Korean consulate or Chinese consulate or Hong Kong consulate right. and say, I want a list of all these factories who make not only toys, but I was, for a while, I was in textile. And, you know, I was importing textile from Korea, Georgette, and selling it 
making 30, 40% profit until all the Persians found out what I'm doing and they came into it. So I left. (laughs) So (laughs) I went to something else, went to consumer electronics, went to to toys. So kind of maybe fast-forwarding a little bit, um, early 2000s, I think it was 2001 when the Bratz doll comes out. Right. Um, you know, kind of give us the backstory of that. I, you know, I, I'm assuming presumably Barbie was a big hit at this yeah. time. I'm guessing they owned the whole market pretty right. much when it came to yeah. like toys for younger girls, especially. Uh, what inspired that? Uh, what inspired? So the Bratz doll? we went. We got into doll business in 1996, I believe, five or six. It's uh, yeah. singing bouncy baby. Never made doll. Didn't know how to do a doll. And you know, one—that was my first doll. And did it, you have daughters? I had. I had my daughter. She was young, but I never knew how to make a doll. Yeah. So this inventor comes in and says, "I have this doll. You bounce it on your arm one at a time." He show. He showed me. It's the same bouncy, bouncy baby me. Wow! It was magical. One syllable at a time. And I said, his name was Joe. I said, Joe, I don't know how to make dolls. He says, he says, I'll help you to do that. What do you mean? He says, I give you the prototype. I said, okay, packaging. He says, I know these guys who make freelance packaging. Okay, you know what? I'm going to Hong Kong. Make me a sample. And I'm going to go there and I'll do it. So he made me a sample. I took it to Hong Kong. I went to check and found out there are two factories who make dolls for Mattel. One was called uh, Ovation. The other one was called Washing. So I went to them and I said, if I come for a meeting. I said, if you make this doll for me for $5.25, I buy a million pieces. And one of them said, okay, we'll do it. And I didn't have an order for a million pieces, but that was my wish. And so, and I brought that doll and sold it to everybody. And, and that was Bratz? No, it was Singing Bouncy Baby. So we became big in the doll business. And then there was a buyer at, uh, at Walmart. His name was Ron Store. He would never buy a doll. Never. I mean. From you. It was so difficult. I mean, people asked me how the hell did, what's the name of MGA from? And and it came from around store. This is what happened. I went to him. Now I have small kids, and I go all the way to Bentonville, Arkansas. He says, no. And at that time, if in order to sell a doll, you had to have at least four major retailers, and you had to make a TV commercial to show them to buy it. And he said, no. I said, Ron, what? I come here all the time. Is it my accent? Why are you not buying a doll from me? And he says, is it this doll, Toys R Us is buying, Kmart is buying, Target, why are you not buying? And his answer was, Isaac, you're micro games of America. Who will buy a doll from a com- company called micro games of America? Okay, is it name? I said, okay, I changed the name of the company to MGA. You did that on the spot? Yeah, on the spot. And he says, okay, you're, you're too quick. Okay, we will try. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We will try. So that's how we got into the doll business. We grew. Power of branding. Yes, exactly. So it grew, but then 
again, Ron Stover will not buy my next doll, my next doll. I said, Ron, what, what does it take? He took me to a Walmart store and showed me his whole aisle, 98 feet of Barbie in coffin boxes. They didn't have window boxes yep. at that time. And he says, Isaac, they have 98% of the market share. And I don't have to do anything. They come, they set up the planogram, they buy what doesn't sell, if they take back. Why should I risk my bonus and buy your product? So what does it take, Ron, to get you to buy? He says, come up with something that competes with Barbie, I'll buy it. Write it on your business card and give it to me. So he did, and I came back, I told my team, some of them are here, Paulo is still here. I said, give me something that competes with uh, Barbie. And everything. And you have two hours to do it. <laughs> no, yes. <laughs> but they came with a whole bunch of designs that were all knockoff of Barbie. I said, no, I want something different. This guy will not buy it from me unless it's different. Then, you know, uh, September 1, 2000, Paula came to my office. My daughter, Jasmine, was there at the time. I think she was 11 at the time. I used to bring my kids to, to work uh, when they were, didn't have school. And uh, Paula came and says, I, I think I have the next Barbie. Okay, let me see. Comes in with this guy named Carter Bryant. And he has a whole bunch of drawings. These alien-looking dolls with the big head. And I said, that's it? And he said, yes, and this is very different. So I looked at Jasmine, and I said, what do you think? And she says, Dad, they are cool. That's all I wanted to hear, because I see kids are so innocent and direct. They tell you either something sucks or it's cool. And her, there, was a, there was a spark in her eyes. Right. Immediately, she became vice president of product. Yeah, yeah. Named one of the dolls yeah, yeah. after her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so she's the Jasmine. Yeah, she's the Jasmine doll. So anyway, so it's okay. We'll do this. Mm. And it's September, and being impatient, Paula says, "Okay, we have to do this right. It's going to take a year and a half, two years." Of Paula, I want to have samples that I'll take to Hong Kong Toy Show and sell. Impossible. Nothing is impossible. Go find a mother maker, pay him double the clothing, etc. And I took four dolls with, they didn't even have time to sew the clothing. We used safety pins to keep the, the, the clothes on them. And I took these to Hong Kong and uh, Bandai in Spain bought it. Target thought it was very cool. They bought it. I remember, I remember when the Bratz dolls came out because my sister was probably five or six years old. And, I mean, as Armenians, right, Middle Easterns, you're a lot more ethnic mm. looking, a little bit more olive brown. Right, and, right. you know, your Barbies are right, white, blonde, blonde right. you know, the girls that greeted you at LAX. But uh, it was just, that's all that was in our household. Right. Because yeah. it, it looked more like, you know, her. Right, right, the big, you know, yeah. not that she has a big head, but, you know, bigger yeah, head, curly exactly. black hair, right? I'm looking at some of these now. You know, it represented more of the demographic of America, right? right? Exactly. Versus it's a melting pot. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. 
So, you know. Yeah. So this is this is how we got into it. But guess what? Ron Stover says he won't buy it. Because they're not. I said, Ron, you told me this is your card. And he says, they look ugly. They look alien. They're not going to. I said, they're beautiful. He said, I'm not gonna. I went. So I had it with him. I went to the CEO back, back then, Lee Scott. Literally walked into his room. Uh, the CEO of Walmart? Yeah. yeah. I didn't give a shit. You know, I would go. Uh, I went in. I went in. And I said, hi, uh, Lee. This, this guy, maybe doesn't like Persians. He doesn't buy anything from me. He, just, he saw this. He says, okay, Isaac. You're way over the top again because I used to go over buyer's head all the time. Okay, let me talk to him. So he, he t- brings and talks and he says, so Ron says, okay, I will buy it, but only Chloe. Chloe was the blonde one. I said, Ron, not everybody's blonde and blue eyes, man. My daughter has olive skin. And I named one of the dolls after her. Yep. And they want to buy dolls that reflect who they are. But this guy's in Bentonville, Arkansas. I mean, he yeah. doesn't he doesn't know what the rest of America is exactly. like. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So he says, no. I said, okay, if you want to buy all four, I won't sell it to you. So he Reverse was- Reverse Uno card. Right. So he says, okay, I'll give you a chance. Mm. And Bratz. Launched in 2001, became Toy of the Year. Barbie had 98% market share. By 2004, we had 46% market share. They had, but tell Barbie had 43%. And that's despite all they did. They got rid of the coffin boxes and went to open packaging. They knocked us off with My Scene Barbie, which is you can go on the internet and look at yeah. it. It looks exactly like Barbie. And I know that there's been a lot of like legal battles ever yeah, since then. Right. But I, just kind of talking about MGA, you know, and its growth over the years, I'm guessing there was many years of just like riding the wave of the Brad right. stall. But as I'm sure you would agree, like the innovation part is, is important, right? Like you can't just rely on right. one product line to sustain for the rest of time. Right. So over time, how have you innovated and, and continue to stay on top of the... Yeah, I, as I told you, I'm paranoid. And yeah. kids are like ants. They speak their own language. And have you seen ants? They walk, they talk to each other. And yep. Nobody understands what they say. So they keep changing. And I changed. I changed with it. And we created... You know, we are fortunate... We have created over 100 different brands from zero in MGA. I think 13 or 16 of them have gone to do $100 million or more. And the latest one, which was bigger than Brad's, was LOL, LOL Surprise. And, you know, I got this from uh, being Persian. Your kids make fun of you all the time. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, I'm sure you guys made fun of your parents. I still do. Right. So, you know, my kids say, oh, you don't know. Right. The, you don't know. You don't know. Do you know what's um, iPhone unboxing? 
What is our phone unboxing? No, you see, you don't know. People go unbox their iPhone in front of a camera, put it on YouTube, and they get 18, 19 million views. Yeah, who's that four-year-old or six-year-old? Ryan. Ryan's toys, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That yeah. Kid. What a legend. Yeah, 18 made. So I went and looked. I thought they were pulling my leg. I, one night in the middle of the night, I went and put a YouTube iPhone unboxing. Holy shit. It's, people are unboxing a box <laughs> and people are watching it. I said, what the hell? So I put toy unboxing. And then I saw a whole bunch of people, Cookie, whatever her name is, Toyer, yep. all these people. And the next day I couldn't sleep. I went to, came to the office, went and got Paula and everybody said, I want to have the ultimate unboxing toy. A toy. And they came up with LOL surprise. And it's an ultimate unboxing toy. But even, you know, people don't see your vision until, until, as Steve Jobs says, until you show them that they need it. Right. So when we came up with LOL surprise, the doll in a ball, and the buyer at Target told me, I'm not going to buy it. I said, why? Because nobody's going to buy a doll that they don't see. That's the whole point. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you know, just hearing your story, there's so many like common threads throughout it all in terms of seeing opportunity and striking as quickly as you can and not sitting on it too long. Like you see it, you can just go after it. Right, exactly. And don't be afraid to fail. Yeah. Do you ever just sit in your office and like LOL at like what life is for you now? I still am crazy coming up with new ideas. But like from where you began to where you right. are now and just like, I mean, yeah. what you've created, like. I don't really let it get to my head. Yeah. I still have the feeling that uh, if everything fails, I can still go wash dishes. Yeah. And survive. That's incredible. Have, what, when's, have you been washing dishes lately? Yeah, I yeah. wash dishes still. Not the Inspires Coffee Shop, <laughs> but when you're married, you wash yeah, dishes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Isaac, this has been such a pleasure. I mean, I feel like Thank we can you. sit here and chat with you all day and just Thank you. learn about you know your life and all the wisdom you've accumulated. But I think we, when we pulled in, we saw you were sort of continuing to build out the campus here. So we're excited right. to see how it, you know, it looks once it's done. But you know all the success that you're going to continue to have with MGA. And uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Nice meeting you guys.